This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by our good friends at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at wcscreens.com. You've heard their name for years now, and for good reason. If you have needs with screen printing, embroidery, customized promotional items for your company, organization, or more, head over to wcscreens.com and get with my friend Tony and the rest of his team. They have nationwide shipping, wholesale pricing, and exemplary customer service. Not only are they big supporters of this podcast, but like you, they are also diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. Score a touchdown with WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Today on Onward to Victory, I'll be doing an overview of the Irish potato famine, perhaps one of the most harrowing events of the 19th century. This was an incredibly tragic chapter in Irish history, which carried major ramifications in the United States and the University of Notre Dame as well. Join me in connecting the dots between Notre Dame's legacy and this world event. Perhaps we will find through this unique journey through history a thread that binds the university with the powerful tale of resilience and survival of the Irish people. One might even say it helps shape the fighting Irish spirit. So buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello all and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter and welcome to chapter 93 of this humble podcast. Folks, I really hope you stick around for this one. We won't really cover football in a traditional manner as you may be accustomed to on the show, but hopefully I am successful in threading this needle in a manner that connects this catastrophe of global proportions to a way that is deep and personal to the University of Notre Dame, and in particular, of course, her football team. I've been talking about this episode for quite some time, actually, so I am really excited to have the opportunity to share some of my perspective and research on it. A little bit of a labor of love, as it traditionally is around here, I will attempt to sift through the tons that has been written about the potato famine and spin something of a narrative with hopefully some much-needed context on the side as well. I have mentioned this a few times over the years. I am currently writing a biography for Lewis Salmon, who was Notre Dame's first All-American around the turn of the 20th century. I won't spoil too much about Lou right now, though I am really excited for this work to see the light of day, but I ended up doing quite a bit of digging on the famine during this, uh, for Lou himself was a second-generation Irish immigrant whose grandmother and father fled Ireland in the 1850s aboard a mail ship. At any rate, a couple housekeeping items before we go in. First, I hope you had an opportunity to listen to episode 92, released a little bit earlier this month. 
It was about Notre Dame head coach in 1900-1901, Pat O'Day. O'Day was an absolute college football star at the University of Wisconsin, where he was an All-American fullback, kicker, and punter. Given his Australian roots and his time spent down under, so to speak, playing Australian rules football, his nickname was the Kangaroo Kicker. 70-plus yard dropped field goals and 80-plus yard punts were commonplace for O'Day at Wisconsin. At the time, folks had never witnessed such a kicker or punter in football history. But fresh off his college playing days, he actually commandeered the University of Notre Dame's football team where they actually experienced some really successful seasons. However, O'Day had a sordid end in South Bend, bounced around the coaching ranks for a couple more seasons, practiced some law, likely stole a bunch of money from somebody, and then absolutely vanished without a trace for decades. He resurrected, uh, so to speak, and soon found tons of fame as an early star in the college football world. So go check it out. I think it's worth every minute. Hopefully I did a decent job of selling it. Also a sincere acknowledgement of the show's financial sponsors. We call them the Consensus All-Americans. These folks have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show's efforts, and they are Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, author and writer Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey. If you yourself would like to chip in and make the prestigious muster roll of the Consensus All-Americans, please visit paypal.me slash onwardtovictory if you're interested in a one-time donation, or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast for a monthly contribution. Thank you all, and of course I'd be remiss not to mention that this show is powered by West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery, at wcscreens.com. So please jump over to them with any screen printing, embroidery needs for you, your organization, your company, whatever it might be. They also specialize in promotional items. So make sure you head over to wcscreens.com and connect with Tony and the rest of his team. Also, this podcast is now sponsored by Augie's Locker Room in South Bend, the premier shop for Notre Dame memorabilia and gifts. No trip to campus would be complete without a stop at my good pal Augie's. One-of-a-kind items, gifts, and relics. He's even dedicating some space for museum-like exhibits. It's just too cool. Now, they're at a new location at 1733 North Ironwood Drive, which is just a stone's throw from the old location. But it's the same Augie that you know and love. Augie's Locker Room. So, before we begin the narrative on the famine, how about a little football story? Since we won't really be talking about it a ton on this football podcast during this episode anyway. I'd like to point out a game that perhaps some in the listening audience may remember. In 1997, when Notre Dame traveled cross-country to play the then number 19 Stanford University, the Stanford marching band made national headlines when, at an attempt at humor, the Leland Stanford Junior University marching band, that is a uh, bit of a mouthful, as the band is called, put forth a parody skit which depicted the Irish potato famine, featuring a character called Seamus O'Hungry. The skit portrayed the band narrator as a representative uh, of a satirically Irish person who possessed, quote, 
sparse cultural heritage that consisted of only fighting, then starving, end quote. Pretty rough, but school officials and many Catholics were pretty pissed about it. Uh, just so it's clear, the Stanford Marching Band kind of does these things a lot. They employ tons of satire and humor into their presentations. So I guess think of them as the South Park of marching bands, if you're familiar with that show. But yeah, Notre Dame, not happy. They had actually already banned the band, the Stanford band, that is, from Notre Dame Stadium in the early 1990s when a drum major was dressed like a nun and used a cross to play the drums. At any rate, the Stanford band was then also banned from Notre Dame Stadium for the duration of the decade. Ted Leland, who served as Stanford's athletic director at the time and who is the name who was and still is, I suppose, the namesake of the band, agreed that the members had been tasteless and had crossed the line from funny to obnoxious and offensive. What's even worse is that Stanford won the football game 33 to 15. So that was nearly three decades ago, but you know or are reminded that this thing was brought up in this manner then not too terribly long ago. So the famine. As a quick preamble, some of the content today can be pretty upsetting, as history tends to be quite frequently. Though we will be mostly discussing the mid-1800s, do remember, though, that the threat of starvation is still something prevalent in many parts of our world today. But at any rate, let's establish a timeline here. So the potato famine occurred from 1845 through 1852 predominantly. It was triggered by a potato blight that absolutely decimated the primary staple crop of the country, which we will talk about soon here. But the famine resulted in widespread starvation, disease, and death. But let's talk about the potato to the Irish first. If you do much digging on the famine, you will find a consensus between historians that nowhere else in Europe did a population rely so heavily on the potato for sustenance. Get a load of this one, though. The average Irish adult male consumed between 12 to 14 pounds of potato each day. Per day, 12 to 14 pounds. Stunningly, he and the rest of his family consumed upwards to 250 pounds of potato each week. And this was the reality for a full two-thirds of Irish society. Less in the larger towns, as we'll discuss, but in the Irish countryside, you lived and died on the potato. So even the livestock subsisted on potatoes. So a famine or a blight would mean that the country was in this unique and very unfortunate position to get absolutely wiped out. But until 1845, there had been no blight. And I am so far from a scientist, but here you go. Podology is the study of the soil. A podologist, not to be confused with a podiatrist, <laughs> named Redcliffe Salomon once wrote that, quote, the blend of richness and friability of Irish soil proved particularly suitable for potato growing, end quote. Friability, if I understand correctly, again, not as an ag person, but is how easily the soil breaks down. 
Someone come get me if this is a little too simple. But the point is, potatoes had very little trouble growing in Ireland. According to research done by famine historian Noel Cassane, quote, in the 60 years before the famine, the population doubled in Ireland from 4 million to 8 million. And this expansion was made possible only by the potato. An acre of ground could produce enough potatoes for a family for most of the year, end quote. So let that one sink in. One acre, and we know now how much or how many, I should say, potatoes an average family ate. So you could really pack in quite a crop in fairly little space. But suddenly, in 1845, during the harvest, there were echoes along the Irish countryside, which again, about 90% of Irish lived in, by the way, of black potatoes. Rotten potatoes. Many folks were skeptical when the rumors first began to ruminate. Skepticism soon turned into full-blown panic as farmers went to their fields and discovered that their crops had nearly completely rotted out. A terror ensued when these same farmers went to their vast, at least the formerly vast, potato stores and found that they too had nearly completely rotted away and could not be eaten. Once more, don't forget just how much these folks relied on this crop. But during the first year of the famine, about one half of the potatoes were rotten. And during the subsequent seven years, that number rose to 75%. It was a catastrophe. And it didn't take long for starvation. And that was the reality. And it quickly set in for hundreds of thousands of Irish. But what actually caused the famine well, it was essentially a mold in the water underground. And once a plant is infected with the blight, they essentially have no more than two weeks to survive. But suddenly, what felt like the entire Irish countryside converged on population centers such as Dublin and Belfast. The thousands of emaciated, malnourished, or diseased food seekers put an even larger stress on the city's and government's limited resources to battle the effects of the famine. The horrors were unspeakable. This is from famine historian John Kelly, who wrote the book The Graves Are Walking, The Great Famine and the Saga of the Irish People. But he wrote, Hastily buried were often dug up by packs of feral dogs. Quote, in the cities, shoeless pauper women with dead infants in their arms stood on street corners, begging. Along the coasts, men and women scaled 300-foot cliffs in winter cold and wind in search of seagull eggs or scoured the January tideline for seaweed, end quote, wrote Kelly. He continues, in the pestilential hospitals and workhouses, the weekly death rate rose into the thousands. In crowded port towns, emigrants fought each other for space on the teeming docks. After two years of famine, people were no longer leaving Ireland. They were fleeing, the way a crowd flees a burning building, heedlessly, recklessly, on ships that had no business on any ocean, let alone a January ocean, end quote. Landlords, driven by the economic pressures of the event, carried out mass evictions during the famine. 
Families were forcibly removed from their homes, left destitute and often exposed to the elements. What you have to understand is Ireland was very much a country that was hand-to-mouth. Some countries might be in a position where they could absorb the effects of the famine of their cash crop. However, Ireland was not one of them. Desperation led some to resort to begging or stealing to survive. Families embarked on desperate searches for any available food. Tales were abound of people eating grass, or weeds, or even boiled leather to try to stave off starvation. Ireland, which was still under British rule at this time, tried its best. This is from my work on salmon. Quote, the Well-Intentioned Temporary Relief Act, also commonly called the Soup Kitchen Act, was passed in 1847 and actually fed over 3 million people in a single day that July. For a short time, the Irish government flexed some muscle. However, limited resources and over-reliance on imports, though historians have found that the country was still exporting many goods to England at this time, poor long-term infrastructure for sustainability, and a myriad of other factors ultimately crippled the program's efforts. Human resources and staffing were among the larger issues. Working with the desperately hungry in the soup kitchens was often an unsafe environment for the relief workers. One relief worker recalled, quote, Placed in the midst of a starving population, the relief workers are unable to supply with enough even to support nature. They are liable to continue charges of unfairness, partiality, indifference, or want of judgment. It should be remembered that those who thus labor for the poor do so at a great sacrifice of time and trouble, and are in continual danger of being attacked by the pestilence which rages around them." End quote. There were other relief efforts from around the world, such as from the Quakers, also known as the Society of Friends. The Choctaw Native Americans, fresh off their own hell on the Trail of Tears, sent $170 across the pond to help the Irish. I feel that this needs brought up here, but you may have read how the Irish sent the Choctaw Nation COVID relief supplies back in 2020. The reservations were hit particularly hard by the effects of the pandemic and were routinely undersupplied. However, the Irish never forgot the natives' kindness during the famine and tried to pay it back even just a few years ago. But again, the need was ongoing and omnipresent for the Irish during the famine. Temporary relief was not going to be the answer. And at the time, that was far more difficult to build the infrastructure for, particularly when you are essentially a colony. Now, I mentioned a moment ago about food exports. Doesn't it seem a bit counterintuitive to export food out of a country facing a famine? It does indeed, but that's exactly what happened. This is once more from Kassane, quote, Throughout the famine, there were demands that the export of foodstuffs be prohibited. However, the government claimed that that would be counterproductive, as it would stunt Irish home production and in turn inhibit imports. Such reasoning did not impress people who were literally starving, end quote. Yeah, 
I have nothing to say there. I, I guess I can understand the reasoning to a degree, but yeah, that was probably a tough pill to swallow for the Irish. And it was. There were routinely protests at the docks and wharfs as the starving people of Ireland literally watched their food get on ships and sail away. Just imagine. But with such a desperate populace, crime doubled. Orphanages overflowed. Parents would routinely leave their children at the establishments because they couldn't feed them. And sadly, many of the children ended up in the deplorable conditions of the workhouses, where high mortality rates claimed thousands of them. So what would you do? Yeah, you'd get the hell out of there, I imagine. That's what I would do. But here's one for you. So we talked about how the potato was at least played a crucial role in the population growth in Ireland. In 1845, the population was approximately 8 million. By 1852, the country of Ireland had lost about a quarter of that population, or 2 million. This included 1 million people who, in that fairly tight time window, left the country. Folks fled the famine the best they could. Thousands embarked on perilous journeys aboard overcrowded and often unsanitary ships that were commonly known as coffin ships to reach North America, most notably the United States, but also Canada as well. The conditions on these vessels were horrendous, high mortality rates due to disease, malnutrition, and harsh living conditions. Some modern estimates state that 20% or one in every five of the immigrants who made the voyage died while they were crossing the ocean. The physical condition of the Irish would have already likely been weakened by hunger or sickness. One of the Canadian health officials who observed the immigrants getting off the boat later wrote, quote, The few who were able to come on deck were ghastly, yellow-looking specters, unshaven and hollow-cheeked. Not more than six or eight were really healthy and able to exert themselves. End quote. The emigration didn't end during the famine, by the way. By the end of the 19th century, Ireland's population had been reduced in half to just over four million. It is of note that Ireland's population has never, never returned to its pre-famine count. The mass exodus from Ireland is colloquially known as the Irish Diaspora. So the other million, you may ask. One million left, where's the other, two, where's the other million to equal two? Well, they were the victims of the famine. The famine killed no fewer than one million people. So one in eight, if you will, of Ireland's pre-famine population. So A to Z, this was just plain awful. But it manages to get worse for many when they reached their new homes. So the question still remains here. What of those who made it to America? Daniel Mulhall, who formerly served as the ambassador of Ireland to the United States, stated the following on his blog, quote, The Irish met with resistance from nativist movements in a country that had hitherto been populated primarily by people of British stock. 
Irish newcomers, with their poverty and their Catholicism, were seen as a threat to the established order. In 1844, there were deadly riots in Philadelphia, during which lives were lost and Catholic churches were burned. The Order of the Star-Spangled Banner was founded in 1850. It later became known as the Know-Nothings, and eventually the American Party, which was anti-Catholic and hostile to immigrants, especially the Irish. After some initial electoral success, this political movement fizzled out as divisions about race took center stage. Again, this is before the Civil War. But this led to the Civil War in which the Irish immigrants fought bravely and thus became part of the fabric of modern America, contributing to and benefiting from America's economic transformation in the closing decades of the 19th century, end quote. But let's think about it in terms of the University of Notre Dame. What does all of this mean? What does this catastrophic event have to do with the school that was carved into the Indiana wilderness in 1842? Well, you know what's always been interesting about the school? Father Sorn, as we've discussed a number of times on this show, was French. Yes, indeed. French as in he hailed from France. Notre Dame has a French founder, a distinctly French founding, a French name even. Notre Dame du Lac is French for Our Lady of the Lake. The university shares its name with perhaps one of the most famous cathedrals in the entire world, which is, of course, in Paris, France. But it bears repeating, despite this distinctly French founding, the University of Notre Dame and her athletic teams are, of course, synonymous with the Irish. Notre Dame was founded in late 1842. Just three years later, the potato blight hit Ireland. The Irish diaspora shaped the student population of the university for the next several decades. Though Father Soren was meticulous in taking all comers to the university, this included Protestants and even an occasional international student when he could swing it, first and second generation Irish immigrants flocked to the school between the 1840s through the end of the century. Many of the new Americans, which is to say the Irish immigrants, were perceptive enough that they saw education as a conduit to steadily improve their station and their standard of life as the generations marched on. As a Catholic institution, which of course Notre Dame was and still is, obviously the overwhelming majority of Irish immigrants were Catholic, and it essentially sent out a homing beacon for many of these immigrant families. But, a really quick explanation on what made the Irish immigrants at this time much more likely to go to colleges such as Notre Dame. And I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but this still rings true. Broadly speaking, that is. Yes, there were thousands of Irish immigrants during the 19th century, and tons of German immigrants as well. Tens of thousands, in fact, during the 19th century. But there was a fundamental difference between German and Irish immigrants, which did indeed affect their college-going rate or want for educational attainment. 
when the Irish came to America, they were, in large part, farmers from the Irish countryside. We talked about how the Irish countryside in particular was affected by the effects of the potato famine. But as far as urban skills, they didn't really have much. They were farmers. And I use the term urban intentionally. As in large part, these Irish immigrants settled in urban population centers in droves, such as New York City or Philadelphia. But they had no discernible occupation skills. So the Irish immigrants entered the workforce on the very bottom rung. Construction, uh, ferry workers, dock workers, factory work, coal mining. Of course, these are trades that now, a quarter century into the new millennia, are much safer than they were in the mid-19th century. Irish immigrants lived often in crowded tenements, which were pretty hellish in their own right. I would suggest, if you're into literature, Stephen Crane, he wrote a book called Maggie, A Girl of the Streets. This is a fantastic piece if you'd like to lean in and gain some literary perspective of immigrants living in New York City and what was that what that was like experientially. If the name Stephen Crane rings a bell, that's because well, he wrote The Red Badge of Courage, which remains one of the most famous works of American literature to this day. But anyway, when German immigrants came to America, they brought skills that they had plied for generations in their homeland, and they were immediately able to assimilate to the workforce as carpenters, artisans, cabinet makers, bakers, the needle trades, manufacturing of cloth goods, cigar manufacturing, you get it. While it was far from the upper crust of society, in America at the time anyway, the Germans had an easier time with upward mobility because of the jobs that they could attain immediately when coming to America. They didn't necessarily need to go to college, unlike their immigrant counterparts in the Irish. And I think about locally here in East Central Indiana. I'm here in Richmond, so Richmond more specifically. One of the biggest industries in our city in the 19th and into the 20th century was piano manufacturing. This was brought to the city initially by an artisan named George Trazer, and it eventually became the Titan Star Pianos. And as you might have guessed, based on this narrative on painting, Trazer was from Hessen-Darmstadt, Germany. So there you go. The potato famine caused a monumental shift in the American population as well, not just the student population at the University of Notre Dame. This and a variety of other factors, though, did allow for Notre Dame to march on during the 19th century. There was a need for elementary, secondary, and post-secondary education in America for this huge block of the population. Because don't forget, for many decades, Notre Dame served students starting at elementary all the way through college. Broadly speaking, education and a more formal vocational formation was the very best way that an Irish immigrant could feasibly get a leg up in American society. Shortly after the turn of the century, Notre Dame football began competing well within the state of Indiana in particular, against schools like Indiana, Purdue, Wabash, etc., mostly on the backs of players as the aforementioned Lewis Salmon, or under the watchful eye of head coach Pat O'Day, who we talked about last episode, both of which 
had Irish ties. What really got folks' attention as it pertains to the University of Notre Dame's football program was the 1909 win over the University of Michigan, which incensed Michigan so that they didn't play Notre Dame again for another three decades. That's another story, which there's an episode about, by the way. But at any rate, after the game, which saw Notre Dame really shed the Little Brother title with their rivals to the north, they began to be more widely written about and called in the press as the Fighting Irish. This event, as catastrophic and tragic as it was, the potato famine I mean, was so incredibly pivotal to the United States. And by extension, the University of Notre Dame. And I'll be right back with show wrap. I'm pretty sure that was fun. I hope you had a good time. The topic was a little bit uh, morose, but one that if you are studying the history of the University of Notre Dame as this podcast tasks itself to do, and I know most of the listening audience also is interested in, the potato famine is one of those things you must discuss as it is a pivotal thing in the formation of the University of Notre Dame. So I hope you really did enjoy that. Uh, if not anything else, hopefully it's a little bit informative and provide a little bit of context to your pre-existing knowledge of the university. So I just wanted to remind folks once more that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at wcscreens.com. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, hoodies, or other promotional items, hit up West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at wcscreens.com. They are incredible. We've used them before as a show, and other places like Augie's Locker Room has used their products as well. And speaking of, Augie's Locker Room is also sponsoring this show. Don't forget, Augie has moved to a new location. So yes, that's right. New location, same smiling Augie. 1733 North Ironwood Drive. Can't miss them. Next time you're in town, make sure you visit them. And again, make sure you visit wcscreens.com for any needs in that area. If you'd like to connect with the show on a more meaningful basis, please head over to the Facebook page, Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast on Facebook. Easy to find. If you'd like to send the show an email, it's Onward to Victory Podcast at gmail.com. Hey, and if you discover this podcast for one reason or another, please feel free to send me a message in that uh, email inbox. It was just this past week that somebody who appears to be in the lineage of Pat O'Day, who was the uh, subject of last episode, actually emailed me trying to find some more information about Pat's um, origins in Australia. So, uh person had the last name of O'Day. Once I actually feel like I helped this person enough, I feel like then I will report out kind of more about this story here. But last name was O'Day, Australian ties, San Francisco ties, and that fits pretty well with the O'Day, the Pat O'Day, that is narrative. So I uh, tried to steer him in the right direction, and hopefully, uh, hopefully he's able to make a connection with our hero of the last episode, Pat O'Day. But if you would like to connect with the show, onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out. 
Uh, I know a lot of people randomly stumble across these episodes for one reason or another, and that's outside of kind of our regular listening audience. We've had family members of subjects reach out, and I always try to be very dutiful in reporting that out to the greater listening audience. But if you would like to connect with the show or just share something, hey, feel free. Again, uh, hit hit up the email address at uh, onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com or jump into the Facebook group. More episodes coming this year, so make sure you like, follow, subscribe, do whatever it is that you got to do to make sure that you are getting alerted to all the latest episodes. So if you have an iPhone, hit the purple podcast, purple podcast logo, pardon me, and like and subscribe there. Uh, you'll be alerted to all the latest episodes. All right, well, I better sign this one off. It's been real fun, guys, but this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, friends, go Irish. (laughs) 